And this is Christopher Brothersby Podcast, where we discuss black LGBT issues and topics. And one of the topics that I wanted to bring up today is something that we normally really don't discuss within the LGBT community. We know some of our friends who have been affected by it. We know some of the issues that they've come across. But as far as us helping them, we kind of feel helpless when we know of mental health issues. Now, that can fall into the category of depression. That can fall into the category of kind of losing it a little bit. Uh, Whatever the issues are, there's a lot of those issues that normally occur, and a lot of us are not quite prepared to endure such an issue. And it is an issue, especially for people of color. But what happens when they do seek treatment? You'll be quite surprised to find out what things they endure, and it all ends up the same thing. No help. So we have a guest today by the name of Antoine Craigwell, who's here to help us quite understand this entire process and this entire fiasco to discuss the truth and the untold truth of depression and other mental health issues. And again, this is Chris Brothersby Podcast. Stay tuned. By the way, guys, uh, I'm trying to do equipment, so you got to be patient with me. Excuse the muffleness a little bit, but I'm trying different things. Okay, this is Chris Brothersby Podcast. All right, this is Christian Brothers V Podcast as we talk about black LGBT issues and topics. And my guest today, we have the founder and president for an organization called T- DPGM. And I wanted to see if you can get, possibly explain a little bit in regards to the audience uh, for those listeners that we currently have to f- kind of give, give a bit of an explanation in terms of what it is and also what is it that we're coming across in terms of the epidemic of depression with black gay men in particular. So maybe you can kind of enlighten us in terms of this particular topic. How are you, Mr. Antoine Craigwell? I'm doing good, and thank you very much once again for having me on your show. The issue of depression is still very relevant in our community. Um, In the black community, it's still there, and by extension, in the black gay community, um, it's still very prevalent. and Largely, is that uh, people still don't want to talk about the issue of depression and mental health um, because they have been conditioned to think that uh, if you have something wrong with you, then you're lazy, you're weak, you're not able to be productive um, and a productive member of the community or society or the family. And so, um, as a consequence, many people uh, keep, they have been encouraged to think and to keep things about themselves private, quiet, silent. And so many people struggle and suffer in silence because they're told, you don't talk your business. Um, and I think this has roots back in the days of slavery, where um, slave families were constantly uh, broken up and fractured, and um, and as a result, uh, they became like an unspoken rule in the family. If something was wrong with a family member, Nobody will say anything about it. They will not encourage anybody to talk about it because the master is likely to come along and actually, you know, whip the person, put the person to do more hard work or kill the person or break the family up and sell the person. Um, and so as a protective mechanism, the family structure, that silence was imposed. And I think um, when we look at um, Carl Jung, who was a, a, a disciple for Sigmund Freud, talking about the, 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 the collective unconscious that in fact, um, and we've seen that science tells us that um, that in fact our bodies, our present bodies, the cells in our bodies carry the memories 
in the mitochondria in the cell structure, the memories of all of the ancestors of all the lives and the people that we've been connected to going back to our ancestors. So it's not surprising that today um, we find that there are more that there are numbers of um, peoples of color, black people, um, black gay men by extension, who are silent about talking about mental health and about their mental health issues, um, and 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 also with the attendant um, stigma of and distrust that comes from trying to get care. Because we have to understand, too, that uh, the concept of mental health care um, with, from a Western European Freudian um, uh, paradigm uh, actually begins somewhere back in the mid-1800s and doesn't come to prominence with some suspicion until sometime around about the 1940s and 50s. And so um, there is still a great amount of distrust in the black community against telling your business to anybody because you're not sure how that person is going to actually maintain your confidences, how they will judge you, how they will think about you. Um, which goes kind of counter to the whole African, original African experience back in Africa, where there were many tribes that held um, counseling, counseling, council sessions um, at the village level. And they would, and as a form of uh, looking out and protecting each other, that if there was a member of the tribe who was not doing well, whether it was physically or mentally, emotionally, or whatever way, then the village elders would come together at the council and in, introduce with the shaman or the high priest or the priest of the village um, and introduce some kind of counseling and, and, you know, and assign various members of the community to stay with the person. So that person in the community becomes a member becomes a responsibility of the entire tribe, the, the entire village, the community. Um, and I think slavery has caused us to move away from that. Um, we have, um, we, the black community in the United States and, and around the world, the black diaspora, um, has become fractured and corrupted by the influence of the white colonialist slave masters. And that has bred um, a lot of distrust. Um, surprisingly, however, there are reports that increasing numbers of black people um, or people of African descent are going to seek therapy. Um, there are also rising numbers or increasing numbers, though small, of black gay men who are going to seek therapy. But one of the challenges that they come up with, anyone going to seek therapy, is going to a therapist who looks like you but who probably also thinks that Jesus is the only answer and Jesus is the way and Jesus is the great physician. So you still have incidences, for example, of a black gay man going to see a black therapist, a male or female therapist, who will say to him after the first or second session or after a while of session that the person needs to give their life to Jesus if they want to be able to, um, to be healed or to be able to get some, 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 some healing. For their mental health to be able to mental health treatment. Wait, that really happens? Which is that people actually Yes, it wow. does. Wow. Yes. Um and what we do find is that there are increasingly um black therapists or therapists of color who have no concept of what it means to be first of all black and second what it means to be um 
a person who is LGBT. So what we do have in fact is that in medical schools around the country, um, that at less, less than 4% of the curriculum is focused on cultural competence. So you have black therapists coming out of, of um, institutions of higher learning and going into internships and, and all the things that they need to do to get their licensure and to be able to start doing clinical counseling. And very many still do not know what it means to be black, still do not understand the sexual dynamics of, of sexuality, sexual orientation, and gender expression, and gender identity. And so one of the things that our organization encourages people to, to do is that when you go see a therapist, especially if it's a black therapist because you feel that you can identify with the person who looks like you, is we ask you to ask three questions. Um, because your first consultation with the therapist is just so the therapist can be sure that you can pay the bill, that you that you have insurance, that you're going to show up for the appointment at the, at the specific the appointed time. Yes. And we say and we say that when you go see a therapist, what you need to do is ask the therapist. You need to interview the therapist yourself, and you need to ask the therapist, especially if you're a black gay man. You need to ask the therapist how comfortable or how knowledgeable is that therapist about what it means to be black, about black culture, black history. And you need to ask the therapist again, what, how comfortable are they with someone who is black and gay, black and transgender, or black and, and queer, or questioning, or black and bisexual? Right, so what we're suggesting is when you see your therapist, you ask the therapist a couple of questions. One is you ask the therapist how, what does the therapist understand what it means to be black? Does the therapist understand black culture? And then you ask the therapist, does the therapist understand or how comfortable is the therapist with what it means for a black game, for somebody to be black and gay, black and lesbian, black and bisexual, black and transgender, male or transgender, female, black or queer or questioning, and if the person happens to be black, gay, and HIV positive, to ask the therapist, how comfortable are you and knowledgeable are you in addressing issues of, of someone being black, gay, and HIV positive? And if the therapist cannot answer you satisfactorily, if the person who is going for therapy cannot get a satisfactory response on that first consultation, we, in, we suggest that that person just simply say thank you very much and excuse themselves and leave. And it may take a little bit of time to find a therapist who can answer your questions and satisfactorily and, and you will feel comfortable because going to see a therapist is like developing a relationship with somebody. You have to be comfortable. You have to know that when you sit down with this person for, fifth, for a 50-minute session that you are paying for directly out of your pocket or your insurance is paying for you, that you know that when you sit down with this person, you're talking about yourself for 50 minutes, that this is somebody who you you feel a connection to, that you can open up and really and truly and really and truly delve deep and, and work on bringing some, some of the, the hidden things that you've never told anybody about, that you've never talked about, and bring them out without getting a sense of being judged or discriminated against or condemned. Or looked, or, or looked down upon. Um, 
And if you can't, and, and so we suggest that, that you find somebody who will, who will, who will, it'll take some searching, it'll take some, it'll take some looking and, and some, and there's another aspect of this that actually makes life a little more difficult for people who are looking for a therapist. And especially for those uh, states in the south of the United States who have not accepted um, the expansion of the Affordable Care Act, which is really and truly an expansion of Medicaid and Medicare, um, they would be at a greater disadvantage because Medicaid, they will have, unless they, they are working and they've got private insurance, they are not going to be able to afford mental health care. And even if they even if they go to a clinic facility right. that offers mental health services, it is likely that the mental health therapist there may be more there may be several mental health therapists, and so that individual is likely to be put in rotation. So every time they come back, they are likely to see somebody new, and so they have to repeat the same information over again. And because there's in some of these clinics there's also a high turnover that. The, the therapist they see this week may not be the same therapist again next week. And so that leaves many people in a kind of a rut as to, well, I'm not really getting any help here. Um, and they can't afford private insurance. They don't have private insurance that they can go see a therapist. And so there, are, I know that there are many therapists in the Atlanta region, for example, black therapists, some of who are black gay therapists, who are extremely selective about who their patients are because they will only see patients who have a certain insurance or can pay um, out of pocket wow. um, and they're extremely selective and as a consequence one asks oneself the question then what happens to those black gay men who really and truly do need mental health services yes. and I know of at least one or two black gay men in the Atlanta region for example who are desperately in need of mental health care, who have been suicidal and have been struggling for struggling for months to find a therapist because Atlanta, Georgia has not accepted the Affordable Care Act. And so even though the federal government allows for the cross-border, the exchange that somebody can then go to another state and get service from another state, it is being able to access those services. I know there are maybe a few organizations in the Atlanta region that can provide those services, but it becomes a challenge. It becomes an additional burden for somebody who's looking for mental health care. So wait a minute. And now with the, with the possibility under this new administration, and I refuse to call that man's name, but under this new administration with their talk of we not just repealing the Affordable Care Act, but reintroducing their own health care um, uh, health care bill that will strip uh, health care services, especially mental health care, which will be severely affected from um, from Medicaid. It means that what was done, what was expanded and done on January first, twenty fourteen, will now be reversed. And it now means that increasingly more and more people of color and by extension L black or LGBT people of color will not be able to have access to mental health care. So we will see consequently, and it's and it's and it's it's extraordinarily scary to think that to consider that 
that the southern region of the United States has the highest rates of HIV, where, where Columbia, South Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, Miami, Houston, Texas, Jackson, Mississippi, um, Memphis, Tennessee, um, New Orleans, Louisiana, have the highest rates of HIV in the South. And to think that those are the states that also do not have the Expanded Medical um, Affordable Care Act. So if they don't have that, and if this present administration cuts um, uh, health care, which affects mental health care, then don't we see that there is going to be a significant um, ballooning um, of, of HIV infection across those states? They already got the highest numbers. Now, the CDC is already cutting funding for HIV across, across the country. What is interesting is that in all the promotion for HIV funding, nobody's ever really talking about looking at the mental health aspect of HIV to suggest that if a black gay man is comfortable with his mental health, with accepting and knowing who he is, that he is and he feels stronger about himself, he accepts himself for who he is, therefore, he is able to make better life choices. He is able to say when he's having sex with another man that you need to put a condom on and we're not having sex with you ejaculating inside of me. This You are not doing that. Because he will be saying, I need to protect my life. I need to protect your life. We need to protect each other. We need to be responsible. Now, there are many black gay men who do practice this kind of sexual behavior. But with the advent of Truvada and pre-exposure prophylaxis and various kinds of other HIV medication that seem to give an expand an extension for people people's lives, there is now an increase where more more men who are sex with men are having unprotected sex with other men, and so you also have a rise in other types of sexually transmitted diseases such as. There is now a, a gonorrhea-resistant strain. There is now a syphilis-resistant strain. And there is increased numbers of men with chlamydia. Then, on top of it, you've got the HPV, um, back, H, um, HPV virus, which, which, which causes anal cancer in men. So how many men who have sex with men do actually get screened for anal cancer? Do I actually get an anal pap smear, the equivalent of what women get a cervix, um, uh, uh, um, uh, pap smear, um, a cervical pap smear. Um, so, so these, these, these are all things that get caught up. And if a person's mental health is addressed, if a person is able to, to find and be able to deal with and, and come to accepting himself for who he is, then he is stronger by the choices and the decisions he makes. Okay. So, you what I'm so basically, right now we're kind of in a in a jeopardizing position right now as far as the state of America when it comes to healthcare, and especially for those men who are seeking help. Right now, it's kind of a a situation where what is it what we can do to be able to prevent some of the changes that may be occurring right under our nose? What is there anything that we can do? in order to fight uh, these changes? I think that the black gay community 
needs to be able to hold their elected representatives accountable. They need to be able to hold those who manage organizations that claim to represent or provide for them. There are many nonprofit organizations that claim to provide and do work for the black gay community that are run by white white people. And so what you see across the board is that there are a number of organizations that use black people, use black information to get funding for institutions, for organizations, that that funding does not come back down to the black community. But we also have black people in the black community who are going to institutions of higher learning and are getting degrees and doctorates and are doing studies and, 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 and so forth on black, on the black community and the black gay community, but they don't come back to the black gay community and they don't come back and bring their studies and their research and the results to the black gay community. That is a problem. Yes. Because if you look around and we can, we can look up and down on Facebook in social media and see how many black gay men we know are all getting their PhDs and they're all celebrating and they're all getting congratulations. But how many of them are bringing their results and their studies that they did for, the, for their dissertations back to their community? And many of them are not. And the reason they are not is because they are now caught in this vicious cycle that they have got a phenomenal student loan to pay off. And they know that they're not going, that if they were to bring it back to a nonprofit in their community, they're not going to be able to make that kind of money to pay off their student loan. So they're going to go with an institution that will pay them sufficiently so that they can be able to pay off their student loan. They can just sit down there and shuffle papers from one side of the desk to the other and sit down there and then spout on, on, this, on this program or on that situation and say this and say that. But if you ask many black gay men today, how much has changed for the black gay experience? They will tell you not very much. Wow. Wow. So this is, wow, this is kind of a tough situation here. So is there any states that you would say are doing things? Because a lot of states really introduce sometimes their own ways of doing things before federal uh, comes down and actually introduces. They decide to introduce their own. Is there any particular states that you would say that, are doing some things more, much better than what the current policies are, and even better than some maybe even Obamacare that would possibly help uh, these situations. Have you seen any states that have proposed policies within their own states that have something a little bit more helpful than what we currently have now? Well, I know that New York State has a very robust and active mental health um, pro um, program. And I know that New York City has the Thrive NYC program for mental health. Um, the Thrive NYC program has now been in existence for about two to three years. Um, and it is problematic because um, in January this year, um, I testified in front of a city council hearing in New York City. And I sat there and heard the deputy commissioner for health with responsibility for the Thrive program admit to the city council members that of the 58 programs in the Thrive NYC program, not one of them address, men, address mental health for LGBT 
least of all LGBT people of color. And wow. so I've challenged the Department of Health in New York City to, to implement and to look at providing mental health care for LGBT and by extension LGBT people of color. Um, and I think they are beginning to take steps towards that. Um, I know at the state level there is a great push towards doing things on there is a zero suicide initiative that is going on at the state level. There are different um, there are different um, initiatives taking place to address mental health across the state. So it's and and so one of the things that I am working with the state on is to bring more attention to LGBT people of color who are dealing with mental health issues. Because, and, 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 and I've been asked this question, not just about the work that I'm doing with DBGM, but I've been asked the question about my push for greater access for uh, mental health for LGBT people of color is, what makes LGBT people of color any different? And I'm constantly kind of amazed by the stupidity of that question, but it also shows the level of white privilege and entitlement that you're asked that question, what is what makes it different? And and I have to simply say, which I'm kind of like often flabbergasted that I'm asked the question, is simple race and homophobia are the two main factors that set LGBT people of color apart from the entire LGBT community. And we are just discovering in the last several weeks that there is a rise Everybody is now talking about the the racism that exists in the LGBT community. But let's not forget that when the LGBT when LGBT people of color talk about racism in the LGBT community, they're also forgetting that in the people of color communities, we also practice intra-racism. So there is still that holdover from slave days that the lighter-skinned Negro is much better off or much better than the darker skinned Negro. That still persists. We still see the darker skinned Negro or the darker skinned person as more sexually objectified or sexually fetishized. And the white person is more refined. So we, we still maintain that internalized racism, that intra-racism. Wow. But then when we talk about homophobia, in the LGBT community and by extension again, LGBT people of color communities, we see that there is internalized homophobia. Because what do black, what do gay men and women have to look forward, look to as an example? They look to the, hetero, the heterosexual community. Because naturally we don't have a template of our own. So we look to the heterosexual community and our behaviors, our attitudes, the things, our mannerisms, all come from the heterosexual community. How we look at another person, the comments we make, the judgments we 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 we, we render come from a heteronormative perspective. So that internalized homophobia that rests inside of each of us. Now, how many in the black gay community, when they see an effeminate black man? Or a man who is, as, as, as some of the black communities have got a little, a little too much sugar in his tank, or a little too much swish in his waist, or a little bit too much high pitched voice or a list, 
which are all derogatory um, comments that have been used to describe somebody who's who's gay. Why was it that when some of us see some of those guys, we also turn up our noses and we also um, discriminate against them because we don't want to associate with them because even though we may be gay, we don't want to be associated with them because we are afraid that we are going to be branded like them right. ourselves. Right. Yeah. So we've got this intern. But then the question is, how many of us will stop and say, oh, maybe I should not look at him that way. I don't know what his, how his life has been that has caused him to be this way. But then when we look at the flip side of it is, when we look at those men, those gay men, who are overtly effeminate or, this, or flamboyant, is that an affectation? Is that genuine behavior? Is that displayed show-off behavior only when they're outside, when they're in a public setting? And if it's only displayed behavior in a public setting, then is it some kind of unconscious protest against the wider community that you're saying to the wider community, if you cannot accept me for who I am, then I'm going to throw all of me up in your face? Good questions. Those are good questions to ask. Absolutely. Absolutely. So these are the things. These are the things that we have to ask and have to have to constantly struggle and and try to address. Now, on top of what you're dealing with, is somebody who who may have a mental health disorder, a mental health issue. On top of that, to be dealing with perception, um, realities, concepts, constructs which are often very far from our mind. We don't even think, these are not things that are, are uppermost in our minds when we, when we see somebody or when we're interacting with others. We very often are reacting or interacting with somebody on the immediate. And how many of us will take the time to step, to stop and step back? Or when we are alone in our quiet moments to reflect and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have said or done that. And that concludes part one of The Untold Truth of Depression. Stay tuned for part two coming in the next following week. And this is Chris from Brothers B Podcast signing out. Have a good one.